today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We, you certainly know the uh, story of the two Michaels, Michael Spavier, uh, Michael Spaver rather, and Michael Kovrig, who have been held in China now for over 700 days. Uh, they, of course, captured after. Uh, the Huawei CFO was held on a U.S. extradition warrant, which is still before the courts at this point. Uh, and something uh, interesting uh, happened uh, yesterday at uh, the U.N. Security Council meeting. A group of Michael Kovrig's colleagues appeal to China for his release. To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you. Uh, things are fine here. We're hunkering down, uh, trying to uh, outweigh the, uh, I think, the pandemic and the winter, which is looming. <laughs> and they will I, both be probably as long. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to seem very long, but I, I hope everybody is uh, doing the right thing. We're a red zone here in Ottawa again, so we have to be. I safe. hear you. Hunker down there, Elliot. So your thoughts on where we are with the two Michaels and how significant is this group of Michael Kovrig's colleagues appealing to China in front of the U.N. Security Council? Well, of course, it, they didn't go as a group in order to do that. There was a special session on uh, the security situation in the Gulf region, and that's worth talking about by itself. Uh, but one of the people uh, appearing to testify there is the head of something called the International Crisis Group, and uh, Michael Kovrig was an employee of that group on leave for, uh, as a diplomat for Canada. So he was our diplomat, but on leave to them. He gave his testimony on the subject matter and then said, but while I'm here, I have to say that what our employee was doing was that what we do, the crisis group does, we want to de-escalate tensions and be mediators. And that's all he was doing. And he should not have been arrested, basically, is what he was saying. And then uh, the German ambassador to the Security Council, to the United Nations, said, we agree. Uh, he's, he's a colleague as well. We're diplomats. He's a diplomat. And then the, uh, the U.K. acting ambassador to the uh, U.N. also said, yes, we agree with that. So they didn't go as a group, but the fact that they raised it uh, individually at the forum of the U.N. Security Council in front of the Chinese foreign minister who was sitting there uh, it was is is worth noting. So, what would the reaction have been from China? Oh, China uh, has the same reaction. Well, more or less the same reaction every time. Uh, outsiders should not be commenting on internal matters affecting Chinese security. These people were arrested, having nothing whatsoever to do with Meng Wanzhou, uh, but only because they were a threat to, as they put it, a threat to Chinese security, and that's why they were arrested. Uh, meanwhile, our, of course, our our prime minister, just a short few days ago, said this is, this is hostage diplomacy, coercive diplomacy. And the defense minister, our defense minister, said it's, you know, this is coercive diplomacy, hostage diplomacy. You and I talked about that. That's, that's definitely, in diplomatic language, a big escalation for Canada. But meanwhile, as you pointed out, uh, our two hostages, and they are hostages, languish in jail. Uh, you, you said, obviously, uh, Chinese are saying, uh, Chinese officials are saying, don't get involved in our politics. That yet, that being said, after an article, an editorial was written by, uh, I believe it was uh, the Sun newspaper chain, they were uh, they were complaining that that Canadians were off base in allowing these sorts of things to be printed. So, aren't they interfering in our free media, our free press? 
Uh, they can point that out if they wish, but the Chinese uh, go further and say, you know what else is only our business and none of your business? Hong Kong. And yeah. this became an issue because uh, they say, look, Hong Kong's you know, ours. It's a Chinese city. You shouldn't be interfering. So Canada should not be taking in refugees fleeing the crackdown that right. China has now imposed on, on Hong Kong. So, and uh, that's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. And uh, then saying very obliquely, <laughs> um, you know, there are 300,000 Canadians, passport holders in uh, Hong Kong. We wouldn't let anything bad happen to them, would we? Their health and security might be uh, something to keep in mind when you start taking in refugees from Hong Kong, something we don't like. And our, our deputy prime minister, uh, who said, hey, remember, I served as a journalist covering the Soviet Union. I understand these tactics, and we are not going to be kept quiet. We're not going to be told uh, we can't take in refugees. Uh, and we stand up for freedom wherever it is, and Canadians are Canadians wherever they may be, including in Hong Kong and also in you know Chinese jails. So this is, a, uh, this is a, an escalation of rhetoric and also a demonstration of Canada's ability to rally a multilateral or at least an international um, recognition of Canadian, the Canadian case. When you see it at the UN like this, and there's other uh, examples emerging now, and Canada's actually working on a strategy of how do, you, how do we deal with China going forward. But the bottom line is they've got our hostages. They will not release our people until Meng Wanzhou is released, and Meng Wanzhou is in our court system, and that's, that's where we are today. Uh, at least it appears as if China is now getting a bit more clearer picture of how Canadians feel about their actions. Um, we remember earlier, I think it was last week, there was some movement and there was consular service granted to the two Michaels. Yes. Is there any reason to believe there's some movement there? Um, <laughs> that consular uh, access is uh, something that the, the two Michaels were uh, absolutely entitled to and were being denied under the pretext that this was a COVID measure, that the normal, normal consular services had to be suspended, says China, because of COVID. But, of course, this is done virtually, so you don't have to, there, is no, there is no situation there where there's a COVID issue. The, um, we just had the 50th anniversary of diplomatic relations just a few weeks, I guess a week or so ago, between China, that is the People's Republic of China, under the control of the Communist Party of China, and Canada, where we broke relations with the country, with uh, Taiwan, which we had recognized until then as the government of China. They lost that civil war in Taiwan. So this, this brings up to a, a number of other issues. One of them is, as our relationship with China goes down, one way to deal with it is to see to it that our relationship with Taiwan goes up. We know that China wants Meng Wanzhou. That's something they really, really want. They also really, really want to isolate Taiwan. So that gives us a lover to say, okay, you mess with us on one end, and we are going to do the right thing, the correct thing anyway, which is deal with democratic uh, Taiwan in a more uh, elevated fashion. And I think that is happening, and it's likely to increase, and it should. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Is China reacting to the pressure from around the world? Again, these are discussions that probably weren't being had six months ago. Now, and I remember asking you questions about this, and in your answer or other political science professors' answers where, you know, China just doesn't care what's going on. They, they just do their own thing. It certainly does appear uh, that they have uh, got this message. Does this change their tactics in any way, especially as allies start to talk more about this? <laughs> and for a great example, at the UN. At the UN, which does, whatever one may say about the UN, it is the high table of international diplomacy. And this is a spotlight in a place where there was no spotlight before. Do they really care? What we do know is that China has staked out a position uh, very clearly unambiguously saying uh, we have a we're going to be by 2050 we have a plan to become the world's foremost country and we have uh, ways to get there that's our goal we have a plan on how we're going to do it and they have a belt and road initiative a four trillion dollar initiative basically to tie countries uh, to china and they're saying the u.s doesn't want to lead we are quite willing to lead we are now going to step forward to lead and just as they're doing that and we have public opinion polling on this from around the world, more and more countries are saying, now that you've, we've seen, among other things, how you're treating Canada, now that we understand more about you, we are less and less willing to follow your lead. So will they ever pay a cost for this? That reputational cost um, is not a meaningful, meaningful cost in terms of, you know, does it costing them dollars and cents. Right. But their global claim to be a respected global leader, you know, we are ready for the big time now. We're ready to be uh, the superpower in the world, replacing the declining America. And it's, they don't say this out loud, and they're decadent democracy. We have an alternative to democracy. We can have success without democracy. Others should emulate our model, and we're really ready to demonstrate it. And now we see around the world that since the arrest of the two Michaels, and with a lot of help from Canada to make this a multilateral issue, or at least globally recognized as an issue, uh, that uh, more and more countries are coming into focus, at least in their populations, which in turn will affect democratic governments, saying, if that's how China is, we're not so, so sure we, we want to follow them. You were talking and made reference to uh, the 300,000 Canadians that are in Hong Kong. Where does this leave them? How safe are they there? Well, that's, that's the implied threat. Uh, and we reacted immediately. China, by the way, came back and said, no, no, you misunderstood what, what, uh, what our guy was saying. No, no, we're, we're not threatening them, but it certainly sounded like a threat. It's kind of like, you know, you've got a nice little country there. We're too bad if anything happened to it. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it reminds me of. <laughs> and so I think the, um, the wolf warrior, this is a term that's come into use, the wolf warrior behavior under Xi Jinping, remember uh, there was this period of of consolidation under under Chairman Mao when they first got there, uh, they, when they first took power in 1949, and then he was put up on the shelf as a figurehead, and Zhou Enlai and others took over and said, we have to create a stable, modernizing country. And then Chairman Mao jumped off the shelf and shook everything up, and great proletarian cultural revolution basically destroyed the country internally for a whole decade, then Deng Xiaoping came to power, and he said, you know, we don't, uh, it doesn't matter what color the cat is, uh, what matters is whether the cat can t- catch mice. That it, red ideology, communist ideology isn't what we're after. We're after developing 
developing our country. And he opened up China to the world, a whole different peaceable rise was his slogan. And then Xi Jinping came to power after an interregnum of collective leadership and said, I'm done with collective leadership and I'm done with being a meek, mild power. Uh, we, are, we are no longer a, a gently rising power, no threat to anybody. We plan to, you know, we plan to be the central power in the world. And we're not going to be nice about it. Wolf Warrior is actually a, a, a movie series in China. Uh, it's really a Rambo thing. So they've got a, an elite group there that takes on the world and takes on a Westerner uh, and defeats this ugly Western villain eventually. So it's a Rambo image that he's applying to himself and, and, and his behavior around. There are 28 countries now have bilateral disputes with China. Uh, just about every place around China now is in some kind of dispute with China, including in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and very, um, in a very scary way, the India-China uh, border. And so there's, they are asserting themselves in a very aggressive way. And part of that behavior is, well, we'll just, we'll just um, do two things. We'll lock up people. We will get our way. You lock up our, uh, our chief operating officer of one of our, our champion industries, and we're going to uh, retaliate, which they've done against us. But there's also cyber security they, they, and influence operations. So what looked like harmless and friendly cooperative behavior through these things called Confucius Institutes, everybody's reevaluating those now. What are they really up to? So as an as a international actor, behaving in ways which Canada is now very concerned about in terms of the, how they're behaving internally inside Canada, and also in hacking, you know, whatever happened to Nortel. So China is now coming into focus in a way, just at the point they want to say, look what great leaders we can be. And now a lot of people are saying, yeah, we're, we're looking, and we don't like what we see. All right, let's, uh, let's, uh, we, we haven't heard a lot about China in, uh, of late in regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. We all know that this is where, very much like SARS, this is exactly where uh, uh, the virus originated from. Uh, we haven't heard, we haven't talked much about the origin of it or, or whether it came from that uh, food market in Wuhan or, or what have you, but it, it certainly does parallel uh, the, the SARS pandemic. Where is China with this pandemic? Sure. Do they owe the world something on this? Considering this has brought the world to a standstill, do they not owe the world, whether it's an apology, whether it's a solution, what have you? But wouldn't this go an awful long way to improving China's image if they all of a sudden said, hey, you know, we're sorry about this and we're going to help everybody I mean, why are they not trying to sell that instead of, you know, the, you know, the, the gavel kind of, you know, down comes the hammer kind of China, the old, the old school. Yes. A quick word before we move on. In terms of hostage diplomacy, remember, we also have others there. Hussein Shalil is a, a Uyghur mm. activist and a Canadian as well as Chinese citizen. He was put in jail for life in 2006 on, on trumped up charges, apparently. So we have we have a broader range of issues than the two names that come up, and, and it affects also, therefore, our attitudes toward the, the Uyghur population as well as Hong Kong and so forth. So in terms of the COVID, what we have is an insistence, quite successfully apparently so far, that China has, um, they're imposing their narrative, and the, and the U.S. is trying to impose a different narrative, and so far it looks like China is winning that narrative battle. They're saying, we did everything right. Uh, we are. We went out of our way not only to 
deal with it at home, but we immediately told the world, and we sent supplies around the world. It turns out a lot of them were defective, but we've come to the world's aid, and we are totally transparent. We've released the genome. Uh, once we've unraveled it, we've sold that the world. We did that free, and now there's suspicions they're hacking into the agencies around the world that are working in that genome. But the point is, they have put out a a seamless narrative that they are selling to the world and certainly to their own population. And the United States has a counter-narrative, but given the, the, um, how can we gently put it, the nature of of how how the Trump administration deals with narratives, uh, it looks like China is telling the world, and at the moment more or less getting away with it compared to the U.S. narrative. Do they owe the world an apology? Um, Certainly, I think it's well worth it looking at this WHO relationship later and uh, how China handled it. How they're handling it at home, by the way, is that uh, they are using their surveillance technology, which is extraordinary. There's a billion point field, you know, 1.4 billion people they are managing, uh, including the Uyghurs, a million of them. Uh, they had to download the app. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And they are saying, Look how efficient our kind of government is, but they have apparently apparently achieved great success in managing inside the country uh, that pandemic, so that Wuhan itself is now apparently quite an open city, people going to restaurants, and, um, and life is inside China apparently is pretty normal because of the way they've handled it. And they are now saying, look, look how good we are at handling our crisis. We'll be glad to help out uh, the rest of the world. It's too bad the rest of the world isn't as good as we are about this. So that's, in a nutshell, where they are on that. Do you not think they should use this more, though, to 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 sell it? You know, we're going to save you now. Even though it started there, we're going to save you now. We're going to, to help you in any way I can. Or is it is, is the other image of, hey, we're just doing it better than everybody else? Are they getting more mileage out of that? Yes, they are. They're, they are they've gone to Africa, for example. Remember, they're on a... I'll put this in in a a phrase that you can use in two ways. They're on an influence operation around the world. Uh, One is we are a rising power, and we are going to use our influence to to tie others to us. And that's in a way that we have not been paying much attention to in Africa. Certainly this whole Belt and Road Initiative, which crosses all across Europe and and, uh, much of of Asia, but uh, and also in Latin America. In fact, right in somebody who was raising this with me in Barbados, so right in America's backyard, uh, they are using their their uh, growing power, to, including in COVID. They they go to Africa and say, we're here to help. And so they are trying to capitalize on, on that ability to mass-produce material. And also, incidentally, when we wanted material, PPP, where did we have to go? We had to go to China. So... One impact of COVID will be that more and more countries say we don't want to have to rely on China anymore uh, for anything, and certainly not for essential equipment uh, regarding the, the pandemic. The other influence operation, however, of course, is, is, is covert and, and uh, uh, negative, and that is the influence operations to turn public opinion uh, toward China and away from the U.S. and basically to, um, to use the tools of uh, modern influence operations, uh, uh, which includes hacking, among other things, to mm. um, to undermine demo- the nature of democracies around the world, we're told, and also to uh, 
benefit financially. There's, there's a lot of commercial espionage involved in this. So they are involved in a double-pronged influence operation globally, and they're, they're doing very well in, in terms of um, the COVID crisis, escaping the blame for it and trying to claim some credit for helping. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. And Yes, and uh, be well, everybody. We're in a red zone in Ottawa, as I said, and uh, good, luck to, good luck to all who are listening. Be, Elliot, be you wise, take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.